Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. This is Adam, and today me, Will, and Craig are joined by artist and theorist Ian Allen Paul to discuss his essay, Are Prisons Computers? in which he argues for a cybernetic and digital understanding of prisons and policing. Ian's work calls upon us to reevaluate the distinction between discipline and control, and at the same time, it calls for us to return to the work of the Prison Information Group as a way of understanding prisoner revolts today as models for new insurrectionary techniques and new weapons for the constituent escape. Ian, welcome to Asset Horizon. Yeah, great. It's great to be here. Just before we get, get into the meat of everything, would you like to take some time, just introduce yourself and what you're working on? I mean, sort of how you came to writing this text in particular? Yeah, so um, this text kind of arose out of a rereading of Discipline and Punish, where I actually noticed in a footnote in describing the Panopticon, Foucault just says as an aside that, oh, by the way, there were these kind of communication tubes in the Panopticon. <laughs> and that, it kind of shocked me just as someone that, that had you know, studied Foucault for many years and had read a lot of scholarship on the Panopticon, that the Panopticon had this kind of communicative dimension, and that kind of opened a Pandora's box that really led to this rereading of discipline and punishment and, you know, trying to rethink the relationship between Foucault and Deleuze. One of the ways you approach this topic is mainly through this particular sci-fi sort of atmosphere that comes across, especially as the during the rise of, say, Silicon Valley, sort of the cyber positivity that happens in the late half of the 20th century, where... All of this new digital technology shows up. You know, we have cyberspace, social media, advancing communications technology. And then there's this sci-fi kind of mood in which we think, you know, are these new computers, are these technologies forming new kinds of prisons for us? But you think the question's sort of the other way around. I mean, where do you think that kind of anxiety you get in shows like, say, Black Mirror or Cyberpunk or The Matrix, where do you think that anxiety really misses the origins of the kind of carceral technologies that they're thinking about? Well, the reason I started the essay with this kind of cultural analysis of, you know, all these cultural works, particularly in kind of visual culture, cinema like Tron is very emblematic of this, but also The Matrix had a huge kind of cultural moment, obviously. Um, and then in television, Black Mirror and Made for Love, these other kind of shows that, that explore this space. Um, it was very interesting because I feel like we're in this moment where the, like our culture is still very much trying to develop new kinds of models for thinking about digitality and networks. And I'm not sure there's really good models or good forms of representation or good kind of what we'd call cognitive maps of the network or the digital. And so this is a political problem in a way, this lack of an ability to properly visualize it or properly diagram it. And this kind of repetition of the image of the computer as a prison, I think is symptomatic of this problem, right? And so thinking through that question of why is visual culture seeing the prison in the computer again and again, I thought, you know, inverting this question and thinking about the digital rather as a kind of site of that extends beyond just like electronic computation would be an interesting way to think through this political problem. The way I frame it in the essay is that, you know, the way that this is kind of expressed in visual culture presently is that the prison has this long history. And of course, there's this long kind of cinema of prisons and, you know, carceral novels, carceral photography, et cetera. And then it's as if the digital just kind of appears out of nowhere with the figure of electronic computation. And so a lot of this was really trying to think about what it would mean to really take the digital seriously as preceding, you know, electronic computation, which of course, you know, isn't an entirely new insight, right? With Deleuze's essay on the postscript of the Society of Control, 
Uh, of course, he, you know, cites Kafka as like an earlier thinker of control, right? So we had these kind of people already thinking in this way. But nonetheless, that was the spark for opening up this kind of rethinking of the relationship between discipline and control. Yeah, particularly when it comes to the notion of digitality. I, I really loved this essay because it was just so, it went, it goes back to the very origin of computation, even preceding electronics, as you said. If we think about the idea of a difference engine as the first thing we call a computer. Rather, it's engineering differences that have to be defined and articulated by the programmer in the ways difference is presupposed, a differentiation or a separation is presupposed before electricity and automation comes into it. So I just wanted to ask, could you expand a little bit on what it means in terms, what digitality means in terms of these mechanisms of differentiation and how that fits into sort of the Foucauldian analysis of, of discipline more generally? Yeah, so when we think of digitality, I mean, how we think about it as a kind of, you know, popular usage, of course, we just think about digitality in relation to electronic computation, right? But in this essay, and generally, I would like to argue that the digital is a kind of presuppositional logic to kind of larger structures of domination, and particularly capitalist world history. And so we could think about price, for example, as a very early kind of digital technology in the sense that it is abstract, it divides diverse kind of multiplicities into homogeneous units. It then allows the kind of comparison of these different units and elements that it's produced. And there's a kind of commensurability that emerges as a result of the division. And so the digital beyond just its expression and computation, I would say emerges from first division. So this kind of discrete nature, second, this kind of commensurability in the sense that the numerical kind of expression of division allows for these kinds of comparisons, like quantifiable amounts to be compared in this way. The third way in which we can think about the digital would be this kind of separation. So this kind of conceptual kind of delinking or as a way of epistemologically approaching the world. So it's a way of understanding the world as particular kinds of standardized units which becomes a mechanism of acting upon the world as on the basis of those units. I really liked this essay. What I really appreciate is the explicit return to the question of the tool uprising, because I think that the relationship between the digital and the way in which information processes work, and that footnote to one of the letters where Bentham says, oh, by the way, this panoptic mechanism is modular, and it can produce all of these different informative systems. I think that what we see in the tool uprising is the possibility of interrupting the information or of decoding it in such a way that makes the relationship between the incarcerated individual and their status as criminal one that starts to break down. And, you know, the famous essay now that we never had, at least in English, until in Intolerable, which was to escape their prison, I think is one of the remarkable examples of this form of short-circuiting that I think is really helpful. What I also think, too, about your approach to to specifically discipline and punish and why I appreciate the hyper-specificity of your focus on this text rather than broadening it to say just governmentality, right? Or biopolitical control in the ways that we see in, you know, productive, in productive discussions about the function of the biopolitical 
and the science of the population, right, which is predicated on an information program, is that you sort of problematize the way in which we sometimes read the development or manifestation of the control society as that which explicitly diverges from from the disciplinary order. And there are certain readings of Deleuze's control society that are sometimes guilty of this. I think we find it sometimes in really popular books now called the psychopolitics and things like that, where the control society is posited as some sort of fundamental break. And then there's another fundamental break that we must make here. And I think what you sort of show is that the relationship between these materialist ontologies and the, say, forms of struggle that we find within the prison. And we could go all the way back to, say, certain readings of Machiavelli, right, to show the function of the digital at the level of administering life. The way in which your essay works is it's fundamentally a new approach to normalizing power. That's the, like the long story short of the thing that I think, the thing that I think gets lost when we talk about when we talk about positive feedback is the relationship between positive feedback and the recursive motion of normalization and i think that this is one thing that gets lost in these extremely post digital you know increasingly online increasingly networked understandings of power relations is we tend to lose the function of normalization and for that reason, I think a return to the panopticon is really helpful, far from being some antiquated notion of surveillance. What we find in both this essay, and I also think in lectures like Psychiatric Power, is that the panopticon is a particular relationship to information and to knowledge, and most importantly, to information circulation, right? That the panopticon can function as a democratic institution insofar as democratic institutions function along lines of normalization. So the line that I want to underscore here is on the top of page 15 of your essay, which is disciplinary power thus facilitates a form of subjectification structured by both observation and communication, facilitating a recursive informatic capture and network control, which would later come to be theorized as the science of cybernetics. And I think that what is brilliant about the piece is that what we would call second order cybernetics, and I think all of us here are pretty big fans of T. Kuhn's The Cybernetic Hypothesis, is we don't necessarily have to go back to just Gary Becker and the notion of human capital and posit ourselves within the realm of security and population. But in fact, what you show is that at the level of information, when Foucault says that the biopolitical and the disciplinary dovetail at the point of normalization, I think you add something here when you talk about recursivity and recursivity being fundamental to the positing and formation and maintenance of discursive formations and non-discursive formations like the panopticon. So that's sort of my initial reading of the piece. And I'm wondering then to close with like a big question, which may blow up the conversation. Is there a risk sometimes where when we talk about the digital and we talk about the web, you know, we books like the Hacker Manifesto, right, being fundamental to where we are today in political theory. Is there a risk we run in forgetting the prison? Yeah. So, I mean, th this is one thing I try to do in the essay is I try to, I mean, I try to critique Deleuze on this, actually, or it's rather a critique of the way Deleuze has been read in relation to this question. And so... There's a way in which the postscript has been interpreted 
as Deleuze claiming that disciplinary societies are essentially obsolete. And that way we now live under a completely new kind of paradigm regime of power, right? And in a way, Tukun and the cybernetic hypothesis actually are guilty about this as well. And then the way that they mobilize and describe the cybernetic fantasy that they think organizes contemporary society, they very much talk about it in these totalizing terms that that doesn't give us a lot of room to think about the kind of persistence of kind of disciplinary technologies. And so I think of my intervention as really trying to insist and struggle to understand the ways in which kind of disciplinary power and control power always coexist and using, of course, the panopticon as one of these models where it very clearly is expressed. I think it's easy to think in terms of strictly kind of disciplinary power. And in that context, we end up thinking about the subject and the individual and thinking about power and sovereignty, et cetera, strictly those terms. Or we think about control and the ways in which, you know, the body is disintegrated into flows of information and we're caught in these kind of, you know, processes of modulation that are entirely divorced from the question of the individual or the subject. Whereas in the reality, almost always these things are co-constitutive and are working together, both in the sense that disintegration of the body into kind of these, you know, digital pieces of information are also recursively returned as a kind of reconstitution of the subject, right? And so there's a way in which the cybernetic logic, which de Kuhn outlines, also, you know, is very integral to the way that we think about subjectivity as described by Foucault. And so in this paper, I was really trying to do these moves to allow that kind of analysis to emerge. There are all these examples that I didn't include in the paper just because it spins out of control when you start to broaden the scope, you know. But thinking about, you know, like the war in Afghanistan, for example, I mean, you see these things like super clearly in the way that the war was waged, right? Like on the one hand, I'm not sure if anyone has seen these videos, but they're the creepiest videos you can find on YouTube, I think. You have these videos of kind of U.S. soldiers entering these villages in the mountains of Afghanistan. And, you know, they take out these high-tech cameras and what they do is they go and they photograph people's faces, right, in these villages because... U.S. Army has like no clue who lives in these remote villages and there's no documentation of these people or whatever. So they go and they like scan their irises, they scan their faces, they, they figure out who's father, who's the daughter, who's the uncle, whatever. They, you know, they develop this kind of database of individuals as a way to understand the war and the conflict and et cetera. And so that, that seems to align with this kind of very subjective understanding of how power is operating at, at the scale of the individual and really trying to understand the violence of the state and the execution of power operating at that scale in particular. And then on the other extreme, you have this kind of practice of what's called human terrain, where they're developing maps and connections between various things that are happening in the territory. And you have, you know, really extreme things like they're tracking a cell phone moving between two villages, right? And understand that there's a relationship between the movement of the cell phone and attacks on the U.S. troops, right? And so they decide to bomb the cell phone, not knowing, you know, who has it or knowing nothing about it other than, you know, the kind of network address and the location over time, right? Which is kind of as de-individuated and de-subjectified as you can get in the execution of power, right? But nonetheless, there's a kind of relationship between these things, between the kind of like hyper-individuation and kind of total documentation and subjectification of these people that live in the villages, and then the kind of total distributed digital violence of just attacking the network <laughs> of resistance as they understand it, right? And so these things always are like deeply enmeshed. And I think that's, that's how we have to struggle to think about these things. I just want to pick up on this, just to explain a little bit on the notion of positive feedback here to talk about. I really think it's important, you know, when you're talking about the 
idea that the US military, they're targeting the cell phone, but at the same time, they have to capture everyone's faces. They have to divide people in order to unify them. And I think this is very much in terms of just explaining the, the wider cybernetic logic, which is the logic of mapping. And you have to, the positive feedback is where you get this a control line of proliferation, this automation, this because positive feedback is where a cybernetic system, positive feedback where is it something happens and the feedback goes, we need more of that. We have to keep moving in this direction. Similar how capital is a positive feedback loop because it's M C M dash. And it then as soon as you get to the M dash, it's then oh shit, it's now it's M again. We need more of this. Negative feedback is what holds it back the same way that negative feedback holds a thermostat back from burning your house down. And I think you see the two poles of this in this notion of mapping. I mean, the famous Borges story, where the map eventually gets become so accurate, the positive feedback spirals out of control, it covers the entire empire and becomes useless. And then maybe in that sense, negative feedback is this point of utility. But there's also a sense in which when you map out a territory, you've got to name certain points of interest. And this naming function occurs to people as well as it does for places. So it's interesting to think about feedback and the cybernetic logic of control and discipline as one and the same. And I think one of the ways that it's really fascinating you do this is through a logic of acceleration, a logic of the acceleration of things that happens with automation, particularly when it comes to the keeping of records in the prison. So just to sort of use a bit of negative feedback to keep it within the confines of the prison, because of course, it, it just as one way, a, a question about, you know, how does the prison become a space in which the production of subjectivity is automated? But also on the side of positive feedback, how exactly does this positive feedback spill out? Because you you mentioned a piece from Intolerable about the riots outside of a prison. I think this was in, in Algeria when there was people rioting outside, supporting the prisoners who are rioting inside the prison. And then the police spill out and the policing never actually stops. The actual existence of prisons requires for the sustaining of its of itself that this positive feedback overflows into wide society and police spiral everywhere. So I guess, yeah. So how do these two poles work in terms of the automation in the prison and then the requirement in light of this automation for the prison and policing to expand even further outwards into society? Yeah, so I think one way to begin thinking about this question would be to address the question of how separability relates with totality. And so there's a way in which the digital separation effectuated by prisons is also the condition under which carcerality becomes a kind of totalizing condition and kind of subsumes the entirety of the social field, right? And so when we think about separation and division within the context of the prison, we of course can think about the literal div division architecturally between the inside and the outside of the prison as a fundamental kind of structure of how the prison operates. And then of course, within the prison, you have the division of the prison and the individual cells. And so that's the condition under which people can be individuated as particular kinds of subjects with criminal histories and behavioral histories, et cetera. And then you have the further divisions <laughs> of the prisoner where kind of akin to Taylorism in the factory where the kind of workers' gestures are dissected and picked apart as a means of increasing the efficiency of the factory. You have a similar kind of process in the prison where prisoner behavior is recorded over time as a means of analyzing the behavior of prisons and, you know, executing more effective prison management and policing of the prisoners. And then, of course, you know, the really central thing to the Panopticon is the division between the guard and the prisoner, right, which is the site where the feedback begins to take place, right? I'm always reluctant to describe what the panopticon is because I'm sure, you know, 
I'm sure 99% of people listening to this know. But, you know, the, the structure of the panopticon is such, right, that there's a kind of unidirectional movement of light, right? So light does not escape the central tower, so nobody can see the guard, but the prisoner is exposed and the light of the prisoner kind of enters into the tower and so the guard can see them, right? So there's this kind of unidirectional flow of information from the cell to the tower, right? But then this architectural relationship between the prisoner and the guard kind of effectuates a subjective split, right? So within the prisoner themselves, they have to monitor themselves, of course, as if the prison guard is watching, right? And so this is one of the ways in which this automation and kind of recursive structure occurs is that, you know, within subjectivity itself, there's a mirroring or extension of the digital split between the guard and the prisoner that happens subjectively within the prisoner, right? So there's a way in which this digital division goes all from the architecture to the layout of the prison, to the, you know, the actual subjective experience of the prisoner, right? So that's one way in which this occurs. Now, when you introduce the communicative dimension, then you no longer in the situation where it's actually one directional, but you can have this communication back and forth between the prisoner and the prison guard, which, you know, Bentham notes is meant to actually kind of eliminate thinking, right? And so here you have the real extreme kind of expression of control, right? You know, this is what's been described as machinic enslavement or what I call in the essay, the automation of the subject, where, you know, in this point, the subjectivity of the prisoner actually dissolves. And what you're left with is like an object, like a body that's actually part of the prison machine and is expected to just kind of operate according to the signals of the guard, you know, and, and report back to the guard without any kind of subjective process occurring, right? And so this is the way in which the subjective kind of domination of disciplinary societies and the kind of desubjectivated, individuated kind of power of control societies converge like in this singular architecture. And, uh, you know, just a side note, you can cut this out later if you want, but there, there's another really interesting footnote in Discipline and Punish where, you know, Foucault is talking about schools and he just mentions like, oh, by the way, you know, in the study, like uh, they mentioned that students receive about like 200 orders a day from their teachers in the form of bells or like expected behaviors or whatever, right? But I mean, th this kind of logic of signalization and kind of informatic demands is spread all throughout all the institutions of disciplinary society, right? This idea that there's an order or a command kind of executed and there's expected output as a result of that command, right? And so this is occurring all throughout these spaces. So Ian, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Once again, this is a fascinating paper and this is a fascinating discussion. And I'm glad you left off talking about schools because I was actually a teacher in a prison for a few years. And so I'm always reading these things through the lens of those experiences. And I just want to cast a few threads in your direction and then you can pick up any one of them that you want. I just want to say that what I think is one of the most important parts of this paper is this distinction that's to be made between the notion of a difference of life as such, as you write, a difference which is ineradicable and infinite versus what you call a digital forms of difference, this idea of casting a digital mesh over things. And since you brought up the topic of schools, maybe I'll shift what I was going to say slightly because working in a prison that has programs and a school system, you see an entire continuum of discipline and control inside the prison itself, but in a very sort of intense, and it's cast in a very kind of sharp relief. And one of the first things that I think of that stands out in your paper too is 
the initial kinds of quantitative reductions or separations that are made at the level of what distinguishes a prisoner from a civilian or just your ordinary citizen in society. And we talk about the sexual and racial differences that that undergird the whole subjectification apparatus that happens within a prison. I mean, first and foremost is just the gender or sex separation. There's a men's and a woman's prison, right? So right away, going into a prison, that difference is already effectuated right from the start. And if if you've worked in prisons or known anyone who has or known anyone who's been to prison, you'll know that one of the most fundamental separations with the population of the inmate culture is that of racial differences. And those are so fundamental that upon your first day of entering into a cell or a dormitory in carceral space, you will be asked to identify with a particular group, white, black, Southsider, and then you will be pigeonholed into those groups. But I was thinking after reading this essay, it made me realize that one of the most fundamental ways that this digital mesh is cast upon inmates in a population is the notion of account. Three times a day, you wake up, the first thing that you do, you're forced to stand in a little block on a grid. And it's at that time, you know, there's a roll call and, you know, a few commands to be given. And then this very sort of like rigid parental act of the deputy giving you your meal for the day. And this happens three times a day. And the idea of account, I think, is so interesting because there's nothing more quantitative than being counted. And so this too lies at the basis of this split, this separation, this notion of difference in the form of quantities versus a notion of difference of life as one that's utterly particular or ineradicable or or infinite. Those are the things that I just wanted to point out, the connections that I made. But the big connection is the, the way that you bring in Kafka in this paper and the story, the imperial message. My master's thesis was on Kafka and Deleuze, and this is actually one of the stories that I focused on in particular. And this idea of digitality actually brought into focus some things that I don't think I cleared up in my own work and made much clearer for me. And I see that story, this imparting of infinite tasks, for example. We see this in Before the Law as well, where somebody's forced to wait an infinite amount of time and confronted with an infinite amount of guards on the other side. I was curious to what extent, maybe we can talk about those stories. You can give your own telling of the stories in case somebody hasn't read them. But how do you see that connection of Kafka's work, this idea of the infinite, this idea of separation or these infinite divisions? How does that connect to what happens in a prison? Like, How does subjectivation or subjectification take place in light of Kafka's work and maybe some of the things that I talked about with prisons and schools and the continuum and so forth? The first thing I'll do is try to differentiate between what we could call difference in itself and digital difference, binary, my binary difference is what we might call it. And this, you know, I I lean heavily on Deleuze for, but, you know, there's this Deleuzean notion of kind of difference in itself as the difference which emerges from a particular kind of singularity. And it's the notion that you're not different in relation to some other thing, rather the difference exists singularly. And so you could think of this as the kind of difference of becoming or the difference of kind of expression that's not codified. And you could think of this as the difference that possibly emerges between a thing and itself, which is a very different way of understanding difference, right? Becoming is precisely that process of kind of differentiating within oneself, right? Rather than in relation to something else. And so this is what I meant to kind of hint at in the essay. I didn't address it in a lot of complexity. 
But there is a fundamental difference between that that form of the difference of life, which is irreducible. It is structured as a kind of multiplicity, right? Multiplicity being, you know, more than one, but uncountable, right? It's like this very interesting concept in mathematics and philosophy, more than one, but uncountable. And so it's what exceeds description, what exceeds numeration, what, or, you know, exceeds comparison or even any kind of equivalence with any kind of other difference. So that's one way of thinking about difference, which of course is entirely what the forms of digital difference operate upon, right? What digitality does is it imposes various kinds of binary differentiations, you know, male, not male, white, not white, et cetera. And these things accumulate and compose ever more complex matrices of differences that kind of develop more and more complicated forms of subjectivity that that become the mechanisms under which power can be uh, executed differentially. Right. So the difference is the kind of condition possibility for a differential power. Right. So as soon as you have the difference between A and B, there can be a kind of different execution of power based on that kind of division. And that is the way in which this kind of multiplication of division and difference becomes the means through which these kind of binary operations of power in capitalist society and patriarchal society operate. So without going too far down the Deleuzian rabbit hole, that's how I describe the difference between difference in itself on the one hand, the kind of ineradicable multiplicity of life and of matter for that hell, and the kind of difference of a kind of capitalist society, which is premised on discrete kind of division, homogeneity, commensurability, comparison, hierarchy, etc. In relation to Kafka's story, I mean, that's a story I really love. So the for those that haven't read it, it's a very short story, so you should go read it. But the structure of the plot is that there's an emperor, he's on his deathbed, and he sends a messenger to you, whoever the reader is, who exists at you know extreme periphery of the empire, right? And you're actually described as like a tiny shadow. It's like a phrase that I never forget, which is just so lovely, you know, in the shadow of the empire. So, you know, not exposed by the kind of luminosity of the empire, but not necessarily captured within it. So there's this kind of already a play between kind of what it means to be separated and, you know, outside, but within interiority and the exteriority kind of bound together. And so he dispatches this messenger to deliver his kind of order and message to you, the subject of the periphery. But what the messenger finds is that basically as they traverse the palace, they're constantly kind of hindered by these enclosures of the palace rooms and stairwells and cells and walls and courtyards and et cetera. And so as they progress further and further out from the palace, they numb themselves, find themselves always stuck behind various kinds of barriers, right? And so Kafka is playing with this paradoxical relationship that emerges in the palace structure, where the palace architecture is, of course, defined by the kind of expansion of these compartments. And, you know, as the palace grows, these compartments become more and more numerous. But at the same time, the emperor has to communicate orders in order to rule the palace and the empire, right? And so there's this kind of communicative dimension of the empire's power that the architecture of the palace hinders and slows down. And so there's this kind of play between, on the one hand, the kind of division of imperial power or just power generally and circulation of power and how these things coexist, which mm -hmm. is, I think, very central to the way Foucault understands the kind of historical development of disciplinary power. And of course, circulation is incredibly central to the cybernetic form and control societies in the way that Deleuze 
you know, Deleuze talks about control as being described by kind of these open spaces of circulation, for example. So in the paper, I describe this dynamic as a kind of implosive, explosive synthesis, right? And so there's a way in which the enclosure of the prison or the enclosure of the school or the enclosure of these disciplinary institutions becomes the mechanism through which their mechanisms and their forms of power kind of explode and kind of circulate all throughout society, right? And so what you were describing in the prison where the prisoners have to kind of line up and, you know, literally stand in a grid and uh, they're literally at numbers assigned to them. There's all these ways in which like the digitality of the prison really hits you over the head and all of these ways in which the prison is managed. It becomes the mechanism, of course, through which all society is policed as potential criminals that might be kind of interpolated and put in these architectures in the future. You know, I'm thinking of even more contemporary examples where recently in some of these popular revolts, for example, in Iran or even in the Maidan protests in Ukraine, there's been this uh, phenomenon where people that are present at the uprisings all receive text messages, right? And the text messages are very short and they say, you know, you have been registered as a participant in like social unrest, you know, like leave the area immediately, right? And so there's a way in which like even outside of the prison architecture, you nonetheless like have the cell phone number that's tied to the name. And, you know, the state very intentionally lets you know, like we know precisely where you are in this kind of grid of the city and, you know, treating you as a criminal as a result. And so again, going back to an early part of the conversation, I think the challenge is really trying to understand how these mechanisms work conjunctively. So the kind of enclosure and the interiority of a kind of disciplinary architecture always functions in tandem with the kind of circ or circulation and kind of diffusion of a certain kind of disciplinary power, which later would be called control. That was such a fantastic and lucid response to almost all of the elements of my comment and questions. It made me think in the course of this that in the sort of Deleuze-Kafka configuration, there's almost two forms of infinity, a good one and a bad one. You know, just riffing off of your paper here, this idea of difference in itself as a form of infinity in the sense that the singularity and the multiplicity of the singularity is one that is immune to the kind of cut that digital difference imposes upon it. And therefore, there's infinite sets of coordinates and infinite particularity, whereas the bad infinity of the Kafka sort is this infinite construction of thresholds, you know, this infinite construction of separation of oneself, and one that creates a sense of interiority and exteriority that we see in Kafka with Here's the wall. You're on this side. And on this side, this is the side that you can't get to. And then the proliferation of the boundaries and the new sectors that the person with the imperial message must run through to get to you or whoever you is in the story. So I think all of that is fantastic. And I think, you know, even within the context of the prison itself, where, you know, you have the count, for example, you have solitary confinement. And even when you have school programs or work programs and, and such, there's this continuum of the grid to the extent that we can see what are the more normalized or the more civilian forms of su subjectification occurring within the same space but utilizing very much the same functions. I think the analysis that you're bringing here with digitality really lines up with my experience. Yeah, you're kind of reminding me of a very strange series of experiences I had a few years ago while I was teaching in Palestine. I taught in the West Bank for a year and was living in Bethlehem. And over that year, I flew in and out of Tel Aviv quite often to present at conferences and go to exhibitions and things like this. 
And every time I would return to Tel Aviv, I had a year-long tourist visa in Israel that would allow me kind of entry and, and exit. But the Israeli state was also aware that I lived in Bethlehem and worked at this Palestinian university. And there was this kind of very bizarre Kafka-esque conversation that would occur like every time I would land in Tel Aviv where there'd be, you know, a good hour, two hour long conversation about what I was doing, what I was teaching, why I lived in Bethlehem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the fascinating thing was that, you know, my, my visa was a tourist visa, right? So technically and legally, I was not allowed to work in Israel, right? Which was fine because I was working in the West Bank, right? <laughs> and so there'd be this kind of back and forth conversation, like a circular conversation of go nowhere, where the guard would, or the, the kind of soldier at the airport who was having this conversation with me, would say to me that I do not have a permit to work in Israel. And I would say, well, that's fine because I work in the West Bank, which is not an area where you even claim to have kind of legal jurisdiction, right? And so there's a way in which like the interior kind of state, right? Nonetheless, kind of projects onto its exteriority, like a mechanism of control, in which case like the circulation between kind of the interiority of legal territory that Israel claims in its kind of sovereign state, nonetheless becomes the mechanism through which it wants to impose this difference. It wants to really understand like, wait a second, are you living in Israel or are you living in Palestine? Do you work in Israel or do you work in Palestine, et cetera, right? And you know, it's like everything tries to get imbricated and subsumed in this process of division where it's very, again, Kafkaesque, it's this trial without end, right? Where they say, I can't work in the place that they don't claim to have authority over or even, you know, claim to even have legal power over it, right? And, you know, also like for the students there, it was the same, you know, going back to this question of difference in itself, right? It's the same kind of thing where the students wanted to learn and to do projects and whatever else, but there was this constant kind of like a process of what might be called like becoming a Palestinian subject or something, right? Where like everything, every gesture, no matter like how banal or how deep politicized, became interpolated in this kind of question of the occupation and question of kind of Palestinian identity and et cetera, in a way that there is no room to be anything but like a subject in relation to this apparatus. While at the same time, of course, like all of these control technologies were bearing down on everything, right? Where there's total surveillance and, you know, everything was being monitored and you, know, you couldn't move around at all without passing through checkpoints and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so just that, that experience just really codified the kind of paradoxical relationship between these things. On the one hand, this kind of very clear binary structure, which kind of operates politically and operates at the level of state violence that wants to include and everything, even the things that it excludes, <laughs> right? And on the other hand, like uh, this kind of total multiplication and exposure of like uh, control technologies at the same time. I would also say that the inverse is true too, where sometimes it inadvertently or advertently excludes what it attempts to include. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a lockdown situation where I was literally in, in jail, like for an hour or two hours because there was a fight or a riot or pepper spray was deployed. And, you know, the prison space for all of its attempts to try to create this sort of hermetic seal, there are events that pepper spray comes through and I'm locked in and now I'm, I've been affected by it and I'm part of the excluded bodies. I mean, just for an hour or two hours, but you know, it's a major inconvenience. Yeah. I mean, this also goes back to the work of the prison information group, which we haven't talked a ton about, but the one of the reasons I returned to them in their writing was precisely because they see in some of these prison revolts in the period that they were still organizing together, 
they saw the kind of forms of revolt and resistance, which kind of overcame these forms of digital separation, right? Mm-hmm. That on the one hand, overcame these subjective divisions that had been imposed within the prison, like on, on the basis of race, for example, between a French prisoner and an Algerian prisoner, but also politically at the level of kind of the common prisoner and the political prisoner, all these ways in which prisoners themselves become divided by the state as a kind of mechanism of control were overcame in this moment of revolt where all the prisoners acted together. And then there are also these forms of communication, which opened not only between the prisoners, but of course, between prisoners and those on the outside, right? And so there's this way in which this kind of dismantling of the digitality of the prison became a kind of model for the prison information group as a mechanism for undoing this logic, right? I, I try to describe it in the paper as a, a kind of form of communication or a form of circulation, which eludes capture and which is not totalizing, right? I mean, what defines the kind of digitality and communication of disciplinary and control power is precisely this move between kind of disintegration and integration or mm-hmm. division and subsumption. Whereas in, in these particular periods of revolt, Deleuze and Foucault in particular really saw forms of communication and forms of relaying that didn't necessarily become trapped in the same kind of logic. And that, that I think was one of the important things to take from that period. And I think still apply now. I just want to bring it back to Tool and to the GIP. So it's important to note the function of the survey at the front of, of, at the front of the GIP's fundamental goals was the circulation of information at the most simple questions. It's like, what's happening to your teeth? You know, like the relationship between the GIP and the prison revolt had to be one of a kind of, (laughs) you can't call it a counter circulation, right? Because it doesn't exist with the same operational with the same operational flow the replication of cybernetic control within let's say a leftist organization that it's not a helpful mode of understanding so it's not helpful to understand the surveys at the level of like a counterflow of information that operates in the same way and one of the great examples of how this exists in the work and I'll return to tool again specifically was the prisoners seemed to understand how information flowed through the prison and how individuals moved and who they knew. And one of the most insightful examples really in Foucault's work on the GIP, I know we tend to like generalize this, the GIP as a group, and it was, but this really was, I think, a Foucauldian recognition here, was the function of the priest at the Tool Revolt, where the priest becomes the individual that passes through information because they know, <laughs> right, better than the guards, how exactly to manage this relationship between the two subject functions. And I think this notion of of escape through a reformatting of information, the information that the prison information group, when Deleuze is positing these surveys to families outside of these institutions, is the kind of information that is meant to short-circuit the relationship between, between discourse and the discursive formation. And that's why, you know, the point of apex for the GIP is maybe not necessarily the revolt, although it's the most important at the level of resistance, but at the level of information, it's the testimony of Edith Rose, right? Where at the end of it, the psychologist has to say, yes, like we tied them to their beds and we injected them with sedatives. And the re- the reality of carceral violence hits at a point of obvious intolerability 
right? The back of the first volume of Intolerable is the schools, the prisons, the movie theaters. <laughs> like, like these are all intolerable. But yet, when Edith Rose gives gives that testimony, you know, what is? And I forget who provided this interview. It, it could have been Helene or or Arlette Lafarge. But the interview that Edith or the testimony that Edith Rose provides lays it out in such a way that the, the entire relationship between the infinitesimal level of penality within the punitive society and the remarkable unfolding of the brute reality of the interior of the prison becomes continuous. And at that point, I think that your focus on the GIP is also really important too, because it informs discipline and punish. And I, I you know, I think there's a lot of work done on the GIP, but it's often not done in a way like your essay, Are Prisons Computers? which I think shows the fundamental relationship between the flow of information and the way in which the GIP was able to understand how this game of patient surveillance becomes fundamental in the prison. And I think that this also relates to the way in which we understand the shift from disciplinary societies to control, right? In the Societies of Control essay, Deleuze says, you know, it's not the door but the card, you know, is what he's trying to state. But at a certain level, the card is still the subject function, right? So when they say, oh, no, what we've done is we've disposed of the disciplinary society. Forget the prison. Like it's, you know, Mark Fisher complaining about like not being able to get into a building for a lecture or something, right? And it, no, it's a helpful way to understand these things. But what I wrote down when you were talking about the Panopticon, because I thought it was brilliant, was the that footnote it shows the relationality between a conventional sovereign understanding of the subject and the disciplinary understanding of subject function which i think is fundamentally different and perhaps and i'll posit it here and it's like speculative at the level of academic whatever perhaps the failure to understand what deleuze is up to in the control society when we're looking at this supposed chef, which I think he's somewhat guilty of, actually, but perhaps Craig and I will trade blows about this, is perhaps that failure is found in the failure to adequately understand the shift at the level of the subject between sovereign power and disciplinary power. And the difference between the subject versus the subject function of the prisoner, right? The difference between the body of the condemned versus the bodies of the king, and the difference between the function of the man in the tower versus the function of the prisoner, which Bentham says is the model of democracy, right? Because anyone can sit in that chair. Anyone can be in the tower, but it's that they are in the tower that, that is important. Anyone can be at the protest, but it's the point that uh, the subnet of their cell phone registers them, them being there and their function as an individual who has it, right? In the famous essay Call, right, which I think participates in this. We see the discussion of the function of the cell phone being that which allows one to track and find habits so easily, right? But at the end, it's still the subject function. So in a certain way, perhaps our failure to understand the function of the individual can be found in a much earlier problem with certain readings of Foucault. And I'm wondering then, you know, you, you talk about the relationship between, you know, the circulation of information among the GIP and the surveys that were put out. But what would you say is the defining shift in the relationship between information when it comes to the shift away from, say, like a homo penalis to 
the homo criminalis, right? Like Gary Becker's definition of crime is any act that runs the risk of leading to one's incarceration (laughs) is a crime rather than under certain disciplinary mechanisms. It is sort of the penalized, the penalized act versus the penalized individual. And what allows for that shift? Like what in the information allows for that shift? Because it's one thing that I've always struggled with in the birth of biopolitics, trying to understand it, because I think it's one of the most refined arguments there. And also one of the more refined arguments in essays like our books like Dividual by Gerald Ronig. Like what is the shift in the approach to information that leads away from the understanding of the act to the understanding of the individual? Yeah, I think trying to think the quickest line through that question because it opens up a lot of messy kind of terrains of different areas of Foucault's work and Deleuze's work. One way of beginning to answer this question would be to think about, for example, the way in which Foucault describes the Panopticon as a network, right? This is, again, something I really try to trace out in the first section of the text, is that one of the central innovations of the Panopticon isn't simply just this question of visuality, it allows for one prison guard to exert power over many prisoners, right? And this is really interesting for Foucault because for Foucault, there's this really intimate historical relationship between the means of control and the means of production, right? This is something I didn't theorize very extensively in the text, and I try to excuse myself for it in a footnote, but that, you know, for Foucault, discipline is particularly a system of governmentality that that really is meant to increase economic efficiency, right? It's all about ensuring that capitalism continues to develop and expand, et cetera, right? And so you can think about the kind of birth of the prison as being very much about repressing kind of workers' revolts and these kinds of things, the kind of develop, historical development of criminality in disciplinary societies as being precisely about ensuring that people continue to work and that the economy continues to function, right? Later, you know, like Takun, like, totally reject this, right? They say very explicitly, like the economy is over. Like the only function of the economy is to like further control mechanisms to further the kind of expansion and multiplication of apparatus. So this is obviously a debate in a way and the kind of relationship between the economy and control. The reason I bring this up is I think this is this difference between, or this imbrication rather between the means of production and the means of control is one way to think about the, the function of kind of information and communication in disciplinary and control societies. Because of the network, the centralized kind of network structure of the panopticon, the prison literally becomes more profitable in the sense that the cost of operating the prison goes down, right? And so this is one of the reasons why Foucault thinks it's a very important kind of historical development. But also the function of information in the prison is the function of kind of the command, right? So the idea is that there's not discourse like between the prisoner and the card, but rather the card like executes an order or the teacher executes an order over the student, et cetera. And the student or the prisoner is expected to respond right? it's, and follow the order. There's not back and forth going on. The, the information is subordinated to the kind of efficient produ- or efficient operation of the prison and the school, right? And anything that kind of stands in the way of that kind of efficient operation, communication or otherwise, is eliminated from the structure, right? The unruly student who won't stop drawing or the prisoner that won't leave the cell on time or, you know, et cetera. So information and communication in this context is always tied to the economy on one hand and the kind of political control on the other. Now. I think one of the reasons that I bring Takuna in later to think about what the GIP is doing is because they, in 
the cybernetic hypothesis really try to theorize what it means to exit the world of kind of communication and the kind of totality of a kind of informatic society. And their answer isn't like the answer that we get in a lot of contemporary philosophy, which is like, oh, the digital is bad and the analog is good. <laughs> There's a way in which like this move happens very often, right? It's like, we're just going to not do networks and we're going to do, you know, like face-to-face encounters. We're not going to do digital. We're going to do smooth kind of continuities and noise and chaos and et cetera, right? Their answer rather involves the establishment of what they call zones of opacity, right? And they're very explicitly in this context where they see the zones of opacity, not as zones of that are absent of communication, but zones that don't communicate with empire, right? That, that kind of have their own autonomous forms of kind of communication and information that, that are not captured and are not subdued to the totality of power, right? And so this, I think, is what Foucault and the prison information group were interested in, in, in terms of kind of collecting testimony from the prisoners and releasing communiques and writing statements and et cetera, right? I mean, this is one of the more beautiful moments from Foucault where, you know, he literally talks about the work of the GIP as the process of becoming intolerable, right? It's not, it's not strictly about communication in terms of like, oh, we just want to raise awareness and we just want to document it. And it's important for people to know. I mean, I think if it just stopped there, that ends up being a kind of very liberal project and it's totally integrated into the way disciplinary and control societies function. But rather, Foucault frames it in this question of becoming, right, which is the key difference, right? It's about a process of communication between prisoners, between prison groups. I mean, that they were very, they insisted that this kind of communication and circulation of tactics between prisoner groups of prisoners in different prisons occurred and between those that resist on the outside and the inside was meant to initiate and spark this process of becoming something otherwise that wasn't subdued to the kind of communication and kind of ordering commands of the society they were attempting to abolish, right? And so I think that's one way I think I would begin to answer that question is like that what the prison information group were trying to do was to produce and initiate forms of communication and circulation that were not captured by the economy on the one hand, so not reintegrated into the efficiency of the institutions and not integrated into the mechanisms of control. Fantastic. I mean, this, this all goes to the heart of exactly what happened in, in Tool Prison. I just wanted to bring this in, because I just for the listeners, the revolt in Tool Prison was that rather than a mass escape, it was kind of a seizing of the prison itself, you know, it's moving out the space, so to speak, and essentially saying to society, you know, <laughs> you're trapped in here with us kind of thing. Weirdly, it's actually something that Sterner talks about quite a bit. It um, dines a good side against them, the idea that we capture the space, we de-link it from the space of circulation. We in sense kettled very digital kind of policing, which in terms of kettled us. And this is why I think it's so just so just wonderful of a thing to read about. And I just wanted to ask you how this how these kind of things can model a, a kind of an abolitionist mode of thinking. So you have a beautiful quote in the piece. Page 26, some of the edition that comes from your website. Abolition, understood in this way, is thus not only a project of ridding the world of prisons and all of the digital partitions that compose it, but of cultivating a life that intensifies and multiplies an incommensurability, the separations it aspires to escape and destroy. 
Yeah. So this question of incommensurability, I think, is central to the way we think about abolition or insurrection or uh, destitution of power, all these things that are very actively being theorized and debated in the radical left presently. And I think the reason that, that these are really central kind of concepts now is that it's clear that we've kind of reached a kind of impasse, you know, like in, in the radical left. I was active in kind of anti-globalization movement and I, I, you know, moved to Egypt after the revolution and lived there and, you know, tried to learn as much as I could about the kind of process of revolution in Egypt. And across all these kind of moments of popular revolt, like, like in, in Mexico and Oaxaca as well, there's a sense in which like the revolt occurs and there's this kind of, there is this kind of moment of victory, right? To where like the space is smoothed out through squares, like the classic example of this, where like the city ceases to be a place where you go to work and it becomes like an encampment, like a new kind of commons, right? This happened in Occupy Oakland and, you know, whatever. I mean, this is like very characteristic of all of the revolts and insurrections of the 21st century. And there's a moment in which this kind of radical kind of dismantling of the various forms of partition that define capitalist society run out of gas, right? And there's like, there's a moment where they've accomplished this very fragile, kind of very beautiful thing. And then they're quickly, very violently eradicated and the state overcodes what had been smoothed out, as you said earlier, right? And so there's, there's always this kind of big question about like how to multiply this or how to render it contagious or, you know, like Takun and the Invisible Committee use this kind of works of resonance. And, you know, there, there are all these different ways people are trying to think through this question of how do you create something which is not subsumable or reducible to all the forms of coding, you know, both at the subjective level and the individual level that capitalism and the state survive upon. And so this is something I think even though they weren't talking about it explicitly in this language, the GIP was wrestling with the prison information group because they obviously arrived at the theoretical conclusion that it wouldn't be enough to eradicate the prison, right? I mean, this is something Foucault says explicitly that, you know, they were trying to confront something that they called as, you know, like the carceral universe, right? <laughs> they understood this was all like a logic that composed all of contemporary society and that, you know, it wasn't enough simply to remove one form of exclusion because, you know, Foucault said that simply another means would be invented, right? It's like, just as like the panopticon wasn't important as an actual kind of material architecture, but rather like emerged as like an ideal structure that was imposed in many different sites and locations. This is foundational to the way society operates. And so when we talk about the project of abolition or the project of a kind of a destituent insurrection, this is what people are trying to theorize and put into practice, right? How to not only kind of decode and kind of create these other forms of communication, but rather create duration and kind of a multiplication of these things over time, which I don't think, you know, anyone that tells you that they know how to do that is, is lying. But nonetheless, I mean, this is one of the things I try to theorize and lay out at the end of the essay is, you know, in a conversation between Deleuze and Foucault, and, you know, they're trying to theorize the relationship between intellectuals and revolt on the ground. They frame this relationship between kind of theory and revolt, right? And they really see it as itself being a practice of communication, as a practice of relay, right? That there's this way in which a certain kind of theoretical practice hits a wall and can't develop further. And then the kind of revolt on the ground has to occur for, in order for the theory to advance and vice versa, right? It's like, it, there's a way in which these things are intimately tied to each other. And I think we're in one of these historical moments now where we're still in the process of trying to theorize precisely 
what is novel about control and how power is acting upon us maybe in new ways due to the, the automation of digital technologies and these other things I explore in the paper and how different forms of revolt put into practice might allow us to develop those theories in new directions, which I think happen, you know, you know, a lot of my interest in philosophy and theory arises out of my experience in social movements that, you know, I think people, activists and people that consider themselves revolutionaries are often the best readers of philosophy and theory because for them, you know, these are things that they really see as, you know, putting into practice and really see the stakes as being very high. And so when we see things, for example, like Occupy or the Arab Spring or, you know, even the anti-police movement and abolitionist movement in the United States, which is really flowering and blossoming after the George Floyd rebellion, we see these kinds of, not only new kinds of activist practices emerge, but new kind of theoretical communities emerging alongside them. And I think this relationship is very central to thinking about how we can imagine something like abolition and this kinds of incommensurable forms of life as having a future. I just wanted to add one thing about Tool that I think is just really fundamental, which is the fact that inside that prison, while it was occupied, there were no hostages. There was The regime of penality was suspended. And I think that one of the fundamental gestures of tool is to show that within there is a material possibility for the emptying out of the juridical apparatus right like we love to talk like we love to reduce say agamben's state of exception to poetics or we love to do, reduce walter benjamin's essay on the critique of violence to some sort of like radical poetics you know everyone picks up their end notes and they're done right they're done with the abolitionist discussion what is fundamental now is understanding the means of production and we have to wait for the right opportune time where once we've sat through and we understand the mechanisms of the circulation of capital then at that point once the revolution takes place we as intellectuals etc cetera, etc cetera, can do all of these things but what i think was remarkable about the way in which Foucault describes describes this is that in fact the uninterrupted regime of penality finds within its core its own suspension and for that reason i think the revolutionary project remains one that posits itself within the prison you know it's that Foucault stands both with the GIP and with the incarcerated individual screaming from the depths of the prison. And that's where this takes place. So I just wanted to add that, like, I think it's crucial in understanding Tool. It fundamentally shut down the relationship between wrongdoing, straying, and penality. It, colla it collapsed the possibility of that flattening. So in a certain sense, what it fundamentally did was neutralized, if only ephemerally, the apparatus that rendered tool possible. And I think that for that reason, it remains a kind of remarkable moment and one that's strangely papered over in readings of Foucault. So I, yeah, I really fundamentally appreciated your use of the GIP here in a way that's not just biographical or like, oh, why did he write Discipline and Punish? But as a material element working through discipline and punish. So I just thought it was like a fundamentally remarkable point and one that I'd never really been able to make in such a concise way. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, this is a work that I think it has been done extensively, but I think there could be a kind of theorization of the concept of inoperativity as being central to this way in which the, she was talking about these prison revolts, right? It's precisely about the function of the space being eradicated and the space being freed as a result, right? And so when communication no longer is about delivering orders to prisoners or 
developing statistics about prison populations, et cetera, et cetera, when they become defunctionalized and removed from these kinds of settings of the apparatus, suddenly, you know, a new kind of use emerges, right? So yeah, I think there's a way in which these things could be intimately brought together conceptually. Since we were on the topic of Deleuze and abolitionism, I wanted to raise the issue of this set of contrasting images that we have of Deleuze, which is Deleuze as the abolitionist, Deleuze as the figure who invokes George Jackson and the continual line of active flight and this necessity of always looking for new weapons when escaping subjectivating forces. On the other hand, we have this image of Deleuze as the accelerationist, which we see in Anti-Oedipus and Deleuze and Gattari's work. And the idea that Deleuze or Deleuze and Gattari birthed this theoretical perspective, which sought to seize the means of imperialism and appropriate them towards liberatory ends. Of course, the picture of Deleuze that we get between these two figures is very different. It seems clear to me that you're coming down on the side of Deleuze being an abolitionist. And I think after looking at this material for quite some time, that's definitely the side that I come down on too. Take the essay Nomad Thought, for example. In this essay, we see Deleuze's relationship with Nietzsche very clearly. It's not necessarily that Deleuze wants to accelerate all of the technical derivations of capitalism, but he wants to escape the figures that encode and help to reproduce the relation that is capital. And it's in this essay in which he opposes himself to two very distinct figures, Marx and Freud, both of whom represent in some way the reproduction of social relations through the family and the reproduction of social relations through the figure of the state. And it has seemed eminently clear to me after reading this essay multiple times that what Deleuze is most interested in is this process of decoding and desubjectivation and escaping apparatuses. So I was hoping that you could unpack that a little bit so that we could shore up an argument that puts to rest these two competing images of Deleuze, or at the very least helps us understand what they were going after in the accelerationist fragment. Yeah, I mean, I, not to get too far into the, all the debates around accelerationism, but I think that Deleuze's association with acceleration emerges from a kind of mistaken reading of Deleuze that really misreads his kind of description of capitalism as being a system which accelerates historically as something that is necessarily linked to a kind of liberatory or emancipatory politics. And so one way I would think about this is around the question of capture, like for Deleuze, for example, as a kind of vitalist thinker, as, you know, like a thinker of multiplicity, Deleuze, Deleuzean politics or the Deleuzean political project of the group is one, I think would necessarily be opposed to the systems of capture and coding and all the ways in which power takes life as its object, right? And, you know, Deleuze actually says this very explicitly at several moments that you know, as soon as power takes life as his object, life, you know, resists power, right? I mean, it's a Foucauldian point, but nonetheless, there's a way in which life and the force of life and the creativity of life and the difference in itself and all these ways in which Deleuze kind of thinks through this problem is always opposed to the way society kind of codes over them and captures it, right? And so to, again, not to drift too far into trying to explain the whole debate around accelerationism, I would say that if Deleuze is an abolitionist, his abolitionism necessarily arises from this kind of opposition to capture and coding. And th this is another way actually that Deleuze is misread because 
There's a way in which a lot of readings of Deleuze valorize, for example, deterritorialization entirely, right? And this is something that the accelerationists really grab onto, right? This idea of kind of total deterritorialization as the kind of emancipatory vector within Deleuze. But there are several moments throughout Deleuze's work where he very clearly <laughs> and explicitly says, and by the way, there's like always, you know, like this kind of process of re-territorialization that enters the picture. And it's not just like you, can, you can't just like entirely let go of all kind of individuation, like all processes of coding forever, right? He, you know, he even uses this kind of vocabulary of kind of having to carry a little bit of territory with you, right? So there's this way in which like, you can't entirely leave the earth. You always have to like have your own little thing to, to hold on to, right? And this kind of language, I think, is very, again, can be intimately kind of woven into the way Tikkun talks about this kind of project of resistance, right? Which, again, isn't about entirely retreating, but it's always about constituting a different kind of territory that's not captured within the totality, right? And I would see Deleuze is very tied to that kind of political imagination, this idea that, you know, we don't want to be interpolated within capitalist hegemony and we don't want to be subjectivated in these ways. And I think the opposition to Oedipus and psychoanalysis and all these kinds of things can be read in a similar way. We don't want to be captured within these systems of gratification, but that doesn't mean we're opposed to codes entirely or something like this, right? That rather it's about the kind of production of an autonomy, which is impossible, like in a capitalist world. And that's precisely where the abolitionist project comes from. Well, given it's a Saturday evening, I just want to say, uh, Ian, thank you so much for spending your Saturday evening talking with us about the great cybernetic beast that is the prison as it's computationally spiraling out. And then on that horrific note, to welcome everyone into the spooky season of October and say, um, Ian, thank you so much for coming on to Asset Horizon. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. And uh, I, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversations and the questions were excellent.